Hello ladies and gentlemen, my name is AJ Matt and welcome to Advanced Practice Weekly. This week I'm joined by two very special guests, two colleagues of mine from the London faculty. They're going to be talking to us today about the commissioning process and hopefully answering all the questions that you guys ever wanted to know about commissioning and how to apply for funding for your future and current advanced practitioners. So I'm going to just introduce my two colleagues, Nora Ponasami and Jeffrey Jonas, known as Jeff, and they are going to introduce themselves and tell us what they do for HEE in the London faculty. Nora, welcome to the programme. Thank you so much, Ajay. My name is Nora Punasami. I'm the project manager at HEE at the Faculty of Advancing Practice. So my role is very much managing the operational aspect of the faculty. In terms of project management, I would work on regional and national projects and work streams. I coordinate the different work streams. I also ensure that all the projects and work streams are running to time and budget. Regarding the commissioning and demand process, I work very closely with the commissioning team and with Jeff, of course, and coordinate the preparation of the commissioning and demand process. Great stuff. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the programme. Just tell us a little bit about your role within HEE, please. Hi, I'm Jeff Jonas. I'm the project support officer for the London region for the Advancing Practice faculty. And I work very closely with Nora, supporting her on delivering the national projects and work streams. I'm also the first point of contact for stakeholders such as HEIs and employers. I manage the student data, ensuring our records are up to date and therefore allowing the tuition fees to be paid correctly. We also liaise with the HEIs and the employers to agree funding and also manage the team inbox and the diaries. So Jeff, you're quite an important person really because you're one you're one of the last people that holds the purse strings for the HEE money, aren't you? So when people apply for that funding, it comes down to you guys that send that money out to the universities and let them know that we're going to be commissioning those places. So you guys hold really important roles. These guys really keep the wheels rolling of the London faculty in the background. They make sure all of our projects are running to time. They make sure that we're keeping to our deadlines and they manage all of the data that comes in with regards to the commissioning process. So when you filling out those online forms, all of that data comes to these two and these two will look at it all and ensure that it's all marked against the specific criteria to allow for that funding program. Great stuff. So you've got a little bit of a background about our team here now. And so we're just going to talk about the brief overview of the commissioning process itself. And there's a bit of a timeline here. So we're not going to, it's, it's, it's quite a lot of data here to look at. So we're just going to go through it very quickly. So Nora, if we started, say, in January, what kind of happens from sort of January through to the middle of the year? So in January, we would ask the, the universities to send us through prospectus, uh, uh, an updated prospectus and promotional materials that we can share with the NHS providers during what we call a demand scoping process. The demand scoping process is essentially scoping for the interest or expressions of interest for advanced practice places. Now this goes out to all NHS providers in the London region at the end of February for a period of about six weeks. This process or the actual online survey is accompanied by a series of documents which includes the employer readiness checklist, the letter 
detailing the offer, which we call the overview letter. So it includes things like the responsibility of employers, the trainees, the HEIs, and what we would expect from all the stakeholders involved in, the, in supporting an AP trainee. The other thing that we include is the handbook. Okay, so Nora, effectively, this part of the process is where the people in trusts will express whether or not they want to have some places within a university for advanced practice places. That's what that scoping exercise is all about. Is that right? That's correct. Great stuff. Okay, so we're into April time now. What happens from then on? So in April time, that's when the demand scoping closes. So we would then, we would have informed the NHS providers off that deadline when we sent out the email six weeks before it closes. And once it closes, we then spend the time as a faculty reviewing the expressions of interest. At that point, we also open up drop-in sessions to NHS providers. So if there are any queries about the submissions, that is the point where NHS providers can then meet with us for a short drop-in session to explore this a little further and for us to clarify any inconsistencies or queries they may have about places or why they haven't had places. And when we're talking about NHS providers, we're talking about, for instance, I work in for London Ambulance Services. That could be my ACP lead who would drop into that and have some questions about the process and talk about it? Or would it be someone from a trust, one of their ACP leads? Is that what we talk when we talk about NHS providers? That's correct. So when I speak about NHS providers, it would generally be the advanced practice lead within training hub or uh, an NHS trust, or in your case, London Ambulance Service. So shortly after we've reviewed all the expressions of interest, we send a letter back to the providers with a list of approved students and a funding letter for each stakeholder that has submitted. So yeah, so what we do is we'd send through a funding letter to everybody who has been given an allocated amount of places and then they would be required to send us part of that letter which is called a declaration by a certain date and any changes in the trainee list would need to be sent with that declaration form. And sorry, the other thing that we send with the funding letter is a list of students that, that we have given allocations to. Okay, so once that letter's gone out with a list of all the students, what happens after that from our side? So at the same time, what we would do is, it's generally Jeff that does this really. He would send out projected numbers of students that are on courses to all the HEIs so that they have an idea of how many students to expect will be applying to their universities for a September start. And that happens at the same time as we send out the funding letters to the trusts. So at this point, the HEIs don't specifically know how many students we're sending them yet. Okay, have we given them a scope before that? Have we given them a rough projected figure previous to this or not at all? Not at all, because we wouldn't have actually known until we've reviewed the lists. We've reviewed the expressions of interest and then worked out allocations for ourselves. But what we do know is what the capacity of the universities are. Great stuff. Okay, good. I think it's also just important to know that at this stage, although funding has been agreed for the students and we will pay for their tuition, 
they won't have a they don't necessarily have a place at a university at this stage they still need to go out and apply to the university and actually be able to take up that place but the funding has been agreed but they'll still need to go and apply so that's really important that's a really important thing to say so so when the expressions of interest are submitted a hei is selected for each student that they intend to go to and we're aware that this may change they may not get into the selected hei they may change their mind and we will try and catch this in the validations process and have the updated hei but what we would just ask is that we're made aware as soon as possible of any changes to the hei that the student is going to attend that would just help us keep our lists up to date as possible and pay the correct university and just save us a bit of time going back and forth saying oh do you have the student no over oh, this uni okay we'll go there so yeah that would just be really helpful first week of may it's generally jeff that leads on this process we create a list of students that we have confirmed from the providers are the students that they are putting forward and have been allocated places for to universities we would send these lists to the universities and to be reviewed and sent back to us by the end of July or the beginning of August. Now, these lists at that point will include all the new starts for September and also the continuing students who would then be in year two or year three of their programs in the 22-23 academic year. This is what we would call the validation period. So where the HEIs are sent the lists and they will confirm that these students are on program once, as Jeff said, that they would apply and then have interviews or however the university arranges their processes in terms from application to enrollment. And they would send us, following that process, a confirmed list of enrolled students, and that would complete the validation process. In this period between May and July, we would also then offer the HEIs a similar sort of drop-in session where they will then bring issues or any clarifications or anything that they want to actually talk to us about in relation to those lists we would have sent through. And it helps the process of validations to have a chat with somebody. And with the same with the providers, there's a lot of benefit from having that discussion with either a provider, an NHS provider, or the HEI providers within those drop-in sessions, because it clears up so much that may actually be misconstrued through emails. So we really encourage drop-in sessions, especially for these crucial periods in the year. But we're hoping to allay a lot of those fears and answer some of those questions in this podcast today, aren't we? So, <laughs> so, that, so that should be good. That's really interesting, actually. So in that validation process, you also send on the information of the students that are already on the master's programme, just to confirm that they're on that second or third year, don't you? Sure. Yeah, once we've got all the lists back from the HEIs and compared them to our database or our list of funded students, once we've matched all that up, we would then create a list for every NHS on our books and send it back to them with a list of all the students that we are funding and have been made aware by the HEI is going to be on program for the year. So that sort of closes off the loop and makes sure that all three of us, HE, the HEI and the providers uh, all have the same list of students that are going to be funded by HE. Well, it's quite a lot of work, isn't it? 
when you've got when you've got three or four hundred students it's quite a lot isn't it it is a lot of work but i think if we don't if we don't put in that much effort we wouldn't have the governance required to ensure that that our programs are running well our students are well supported our providers are well supported so it's really important and i think that tripartite kind of arrangement is really important where for the support of the trainees really yeah no i think it is it's definitely around all the governance isn't it and making sure that we know the right trainees are on the right programs with the right providers and that people are getting their funding so that's really good great stuff okay so that's a rough overview how we allocate funding the actual transfer of funding jeff touched on the updating of our database transfer the sharing of information with our nhs providers from our database which would have been confirmed by the HEIs. When we send over that information of the list of students to providers, what we would also do in the case of NHS trusts, send them also a letter to confirm the amount of funding we're going to transfer in supervision fees in Q3. So we aim to do that in Q3, but if validations are delayed for any reasons, we may have to do that in Q4. Now, the reason I say there may be a delay is because we will have to make sure students are on programs before we transfer funds for supervision fees. If we transfer ahead of time, ahead of that confirmation with the HEIs, then we haven't got confirmation that students are actually on program by then. So it's a bit of a, an information gathering exercise for us to make sure that we have the correct students on programs and the correct amount of students on programs before that funding is transferred rather than funding it ahead and trying to recoup it if the students are not on program. And the other aspect of the supervision fee payment is for our training hubs. So when we send over those lists to training hubs of trainees that are on program, we would also send them an email. It, within the email, we'll send them a copy of what we have in our primary care service level agreement for the year and also a template invoice for them to raise invoices to us to claim the supervision fees against the students on the list that we would have sent. And at that point, at the point that the validations are done, the commissioning team will then draft contracts for each HEI, and they will then send them to the HEIs to confirm that the fees, the courses, and the students themselves are all correct on the schedules that we would have received from the HEI. And once that's agreed, the commissioning team will then finalize the contracts and transfer the funds to the HEIs. And that completes the payment of supervision fees and the tuition fees for continuing students and September starts during that commissioning and demand process. So it's not just as simple as me asking my employer to ask you for some money for my master's, is it? There's a lot of work that goes on in the background and all this stuff needs to be done properly and robustly, doesn't it? It does, it does. And I'm absolutely sure that in the trusts and training hubs, there is equally a lot of processes that go on from the expectation that we set from providers for a trainee to be on program.
Okay, guys, so that was a really good overview of the commissioning process and the timeline. And as you can see, we run from February through to September and with some key dates in there for us. So there's quite a lot that goes on during those months with regards to the commissioning process and funding, liaising with HEIs, trusts, and sometimes the students as well. And we're just going to look at now, Nora mentioned quite early on in the podcast, talking about some of the key documents that we send out to some of you with regards to your preparation for the commissioning process. And one of the documents we get asked quite a lot of questions about is the readiness checklist. We know causes a bit of anxiety amongst some of the people that have to complete it. But here at HEE, we think the readiness checklist is a really important, robust document, which will help you find out if you have got any gaps in your service and will enable you to work out where and how you can use advanced practice within your service. So Nora is now going to tell us a little bit about that. So one of the one of the key things people have an anxiety about, and I've had questions about it recently, is who completes the readiness checklist and what is it for? And I think the important thing to remember is the readiness checklist is very much a self-assessment for an employer's readiness to actually support an AP trainee within their organization and ideally it should be completed by a senior member within the in the education team in an organization or your advanced practice lead and i think some of the other things that that come up from the readiness checklist is how is it completed so i think you need to gauge your organization I think the thing that I found with the readiness checklist as well, that it's also quite important to maybe ask around your department and see if somebody's already done it, because this commissioning might have been done already for another part of your trust. And this checklist may have already been done previously. So I think it's always quite good just to reach out to that senior leadership team within your organization and ask and see if the checklist has been done. What, how did you answer it? Have you engaged with the exec team to see if any of this stuff has already been ticked off? So I think, yeah, that's one of the, that's one of the real big things isn't about that. Who's going to actually fill it out. And it should normally be a senior member of the team and somebody normally your lead advanced practitioner, because they should have oversight and be able to answer all of these questions. If an employer is ready to complete a demand scoping survey, they would have completed the readiness checklist and would have been able to answer all of the questions, potentially with a three or a four. And if you, if the organization is unable to reach that level within the readiness checklist, then they would know that they need a little bit more support to then support their AP trainees within the organization. And that's where we come in to then provide that extra support to understand how to get there and what are the things we need to put in place within the organization and with our support to get there. So the things that is covered in the readiness checklist that will translate into completing our scoping survey will be what does the person have a job description or job at the end of the role uh, of the training. One of the questions in the readiness checklist talks about if you have APs in your organization and are their job descriptions and job plans mapped to the multi-professional framework. So that relates directly to our scoping survey. Also, if there's clear governance and support arrangements to support your AP trainees, and that's something that we are very specific about asking 
that's in place for the trainees. And that would include a, a coordinating supervisor that they re receive ongoing supervision. And then there is, an, a, there is a commitment to provide study time and leave for all the trainees to make sure that they're not using their annual leave so that there's a bit of protection of those trainees for that study time. So that's an expectation of HEE and that's within the readiness checklist. And then also looking at, because advanced practice is part of the long-term plan's objective to increase the advanced practice workforce, we want to also know at age the impact that advanced practice and advanced practice roles are making in the workforce in organizations. So that's part of what we're trying to measure in the checklist and what we are trying to measure as a faculty as we train individuals and they go into the AP workforce. And I think I've mentioned this already, the supervision and support, which is a cornerstone to the AP trainees development. And that's something that features in the checklist and also very specific in the requirements we have at HEE to, for, for organizations. So, Nora and Jeff, so what is the HEE funding offer for 22-23? Can you just tell me a little bit about the different funding streams that are out there, depending on how I want to undertake my master's? So I think the first thing to say is that the funding is aimed at statutory registered professionals. The specific offer of funding, there are three main streams of funding, basically. So there's the Advanced Practice MSc qualification, which is funded by HEE for three years, for up to three years. Then there's the ACP Apprenticeship, which is funded by the Apprenticeship Levy, but also by the HEE, who provides the supervision fee support. And the sort of the one with the asterisks above it is the top up module support. Now that is slightly different and it's not our preferred method of funding. It would be for, it would generally be for anybody who has reached or nearing the dissertation module or their final year. And we would then just top that up with the funding for that final year. And that would be your top up year of funding. And generally what has happened is if any of the providers have been with us in 2019, 21, they'll know that our funding model has changed. So where this would make complete sense is when we've changed from the PGDIP module to the MSc module, all those trainees that finish their PGDIP will then be offered the top-up modules to complete the MSc. So that's where it actually fits in. And I guess it's quite important to mention there as well that even though somebody's doing a top-up module, they still need to have a role for them at the end of it. That's absolutely correct. And that's the same, that's the same funding principle for an apprenticeship, even though that only part of the funding is through HEE, that's our expectation even for the supervision support. Okay, so we've got three different funding streams there. We've got the MSc, which is three years. We've got the apprenticeship route, which is three years, which is paid through the apprenticeship, apprenticeship levy. And then we've got the top up, which is generally those people that may have done some modules elsewhere, maybe come to a new trust, need to top up to finish off. But all of these funding streams, everyone must have a job for them at the end of it. That's correct. Jeff, tell me about the supervision fee, because we know that it exists. We know the money goes to our employers. Let's start with the MSc qualification. How much supervision fee gets paid by HEE to the employer? 
Sure. So for the MSC, that's 2,500 per annum up to three years. Okay. So they get 2,500 pound for each year of being while they're on that master's. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Fabulous. And what is it for the apprenticeship? That's 6,000 per year. Yep. And that's a slight uh, increase on our current offer. Wow. That's a lot. (laughs) And if I was doing a top-up module for a year, would I receive any supervision fee? No, that wouldn't incur a supervision fee as it's just a a top-up module. Can we just clarify where the supervision money goes? So the supervision fee is transferred through the education contract in the case of NHS trusts to the employer in quarter three, which would be September or quarter four, as I mentioned earlier, if there's a delay for some reason in terms of validations. And for January starts, it would be in quarter five. I know that there isn't a fifth quarter. However, we have a mop-up quarter that we call quarter five. It happens well after January, which is when the validations take place. So we we can't make that deadline. So we do it in Feb, March. And for training hubs, they invoice us directly for the list of students that we would have sent them, we would have confirmed with them. So it's slightly different. So it's slightly different for the training hubs than it is for the trusts. The training hubs need to invoice and the trusts, we send it to them directly. That's correct, because primary care has a different contractual arrangement with us to secondary. Okay, so I just want to throw a little scenario to you two experts here. I'm thinking about self-funding a master's because I do a lot of agency work and I don't work for a trust or a PCN or an ICS at the moment. What Are there any benefits to me self-funding or, or should I try and go down the HEE route? What would be best for me to do? So I suppose we're not sure about the benefits to the individual because every everybody's different in terms of what's beneficial to them. However, from a contractual perspective and in terms of ensuring the support of the trainee, both at the HEI and at the organization, I would, I think Jeff would be in the same boat in terms of supporting an HEI funded route or even an apprenticeship. And the reason we would say that is because there are governance structures within a program or within the support mechanisms that we require to support the trainee from the beginning of the training till the end. And we've mentioned a lot of that so far in the podcast. For example, the requirement for supervision, the supervision funding, the funding of the HEI fees, the ensuring that your trust or training hub is ready to support you, that you have study leave. If you were self-funded, you may get those benefits, but there is no guarantee that you would get those benefits. And we have structures in place to to require that those things are put in place for an individual. Yeah, that's really important, isn't it? It's all about the structure. It's all about the support. It's all about the governance. It's all about having oversight that people are getting the right support and training through that process. I think that's a really good reason to try and undertake your master's whilst being employed and getting that funding from HEE. Thank you. That's great stuff. Jeff, what type of organisations can apply for funding? So NHS organisations such as trusts and GP practices via their training hub in the HEE London region are invited to submit their expressions of interest for ACP training. So if I'm a GP practice, a part of a training hub, can I just, do I have to go through my training hub to apply for funding? Yeah, 
yeah, that would be how we would organise that. Okay, thank you. So any standalone G, any GP practice out there, they will need to go through their training hub to apply for funding. That's correct. The other thing um, is, Ajay, that the GP practice doesn't know who their AP lead is. Please get in touch with us and we can always point you in the right direction. It is really difficult for us to process any applications that come to us without the training hub leads or the AP lead within the training hub's knowledge because we can't process that. And then that elongates the process. We have to go back to the training hub, ask the AP lead whether they're aware of this person and whether they've come through the the right structures to access the place. So that's really important for GP practices to liaise with their AP leads in training hubs and not to send applications directly to we would really recommend that they would that they come through their AP leads and we're here to signpost them. Great and I suppose the training hubs and those groups of GP practices have probably done quite a bit of strategic oversight already for how many advanced practitioners they need in what areas. There's probably a plan in place already for who can have what, isn't there? It's not just, I want an advanced practitioner. Absolutely. So, Nora, if I'm an advanced practitioner who has previously had a PG dip, can I can I transfer onto the master's pathway? Absolutely. So, we try, as we changed the model last year, this academic year. So, absolutely, trainees can be included in the expression of interest to complete their MSc. And as we were talking about earlier, that they can actually then complete their MSc by doing the final year. The other thing that was important about when we speak about somebody who wants to do finish the MSc or continuing students used to be confirmed by the trusts and training hubs, but now we've, we're confirming them with the HEIs, which I think is important because it gives us that complete assurance that these students have enrolled for their second and third year on program. And that's when we, that's when we transfer the supervision fees. So we're coming, we're coming close to the end. There's a few more questions to answer here. And the next one is, where will I be able to find what HEIs that I can study at within the London footprint? So there are a list of HEIs that offer advanced practice programs. And in the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned that we part of our demand scoping process is where we include a prospect from the HEIs in the London region who have advanced practice programs. We hope that all HEIs send us a prospectus. We do have a prospectus for most of the HEIs, but for some programs, we don't have a prospectus. But your advanced practice lead within your organization may also have very close contacts with specific HEIs that your organization access training from. So there are various ways of knowing where there's training in the London region and beyond. It's also worth noting that the individual HEIs may have their own entry requirements uh, for their programs. So what happens if I want to come off my master's halfway through it and discontinue the program because I'm leaving my job or because I've found a different employer which doesn't offer a master's program or for whatever reason it is, what happens to me then and what happens to the funding and everything off everything else so i suppose we could break that up into two different scenarios so if we allocate funding to somebody in september and they decide they are unable to take up the place and they want to do it next september we can't really hold that place because it's the next 
academic year, so they will have to be included in the next expression of interest by the employer. So that's one scenario. The other scenario of somebody deciding that they want to pause their program or for some reason, a lot of trainees, there are lots of these mature trainees, so that there may be lots of things within their lives that result in them dropping off or stepping off. So stepping off is pausing. So they can, the important thing for that, when they're pausing their programs, they let the HEI know that they're pausing, they let the employer know that they're pausing, and they let us know so that we can then update our records to, to show that they're pausing for a certain amount of time, and we're expecting them back at a certain time. Some trainees do that. So that's something we have encountered in the past, and we do encounter. There are also students who, for whatever reason, cannot continue with the program. and they need to follow the same processes, let the HEI know, let the employer know, and let us know for whatever reason they cannot complete their program. Now, I suppose the people who are coming back, of course, we will then, we would have to look at that on a case-by-case basis. We would need the context as to why the person is stepping off and why they need to pause for a bit. And we can always discuss that with the AP lead as well as the student. So I think the message there is that it's happened before, we're aware of it, we have a process in place if it does happen and we're here to support people through that transition if and when it does happen, which is great. So I think people will just want to know that there is a process if people do need to take a break from their studying because, you know, real life gets in the way, doesn't it? So it's it's difficult doing a master's whilst doing a full-time job. So I think the last question we had was, and what happens if a trainee ACP leaves the employer and the HE is currently funding for another employer? Can we transfer, if there is a role for that person, is there a way to transfer the funds over and continue with that person's education? So I think it's, there are two different funding talking about. So we talk about the HEI funding, and then we talk about the the supervision funding. So once the supervision funding is transferred to the organization, we have no control over that. So that funds are there. And once the once the funds are transferred to the HEI, it's there. It's gone. Okay. So if the trainee changes employer, I suppose we'd need to know whether they've also changed university or they've just changed employer. So if they've changed employer, it depends also whether they are changing employers within the London region or whether they're changing employers to go outside the London region. And I suppose the principles of all of those are similar in that we would want to know they're going to have a supervisor in the receiving trust. They're going to have all the requirements that we would have asked for in the, the previous hosting trust to the receiving trust. We would need that they would have a, as we discussed, the study leave, the support, the supervision, all in place for that trainee. So we would ask for a named supervisor if it's in the London region. If it's outside the London region, Jeff, do you want to say anything about outside the London region that we liaise with our counterparts? So if a student leaves a London employer for a different HE region, we can liaise with the relevant region's ACP faculty and uh, pass on their details and see if that region is able to continue funding them. But just bearing in mind that they may have a different funding offer there, but we'll make them aware of what's already been paid at that point. I think there are two things that I wanted to add that doesn't 
form part of the usual process. One of them being the students that are studying at universities that are outside London and how that funding works. So what happens there is that we would do the same thing as in the validation process, we would send the HEIs the list of students with them, and they would then confirm the students out with them and send that confirmation back to us. What we would then do is send that to the providers and then also tell the providers as they are out of contract, so they're not part of the education contract in London, we would require that the organization pays the HEI their tuition fees for the training and then they would then supply us with the proof of payment and raise an invoice with us and we would then pay them or reimburse them from the fact. So that's how it works for students that are outside London and the supervision funding all works the same. The only difference is the tuition fee. The other thing that I wanted to mention that sometimes does happen but it's not usual process sometimes students are on programs for longer than three years and but the important thing to remember is that our funding and i when i speak about funding i'm talking about the supervision funding the supervision contribution that is for three years maximum so even if a student is on the program for up to six years we cannot guarantee that we would pay that supervision fee for that long we would pay the supervision fee as a standard for the three years anything beyond that we definitely cannot guarantee thank you Nora there's two really important points and I'm sure you get lots of questions about that from everybody so that's it's really good to clear that up and hopefully people will listen to that and be like I'm much clearer on how we deal with those situations courses in Portsmouth or Southampton which are out of London and especially because they're speciality courses sometimes aren't they so it's good to know how we manage those requests okay thank you so much to Nora and Jeff from the Advancing Practice London faculty these are the real heroes in the background that keep the wheels moving and keep the cogs turning of our faculty and keep all the projects going and as you've heard about all the work they do with the commissioning and the funding and it's really important work that these guys do because they do enable a lot of people to go to university to study on their masters so we just want to say thank you so much for your hard work thanks for coming on the podcast today in the description guys we will put the acp email address if you have any questions or any issues regards to commissioning and we will be going out for new expressions of interest very shortly so please check out the advancing practice webpage and our twitter feed so thanks so much everybody take care good luck and be safe